Uh, a, few, uh, well, a few weeks ago, it was a lot longer than that. I was going to say a few weeks ago I was a young adult, but that's been a while now. I'm 41, so that's a little, that's a little bit further. Uh, but when I was a young adult, I remember uh, agonizing over some of the decisions that were in front of me, particularly things like, hey, what am I going to do next? You know, what kind of school am I going to attend? What, a, what kind of job do I want? What girl should I date? All of these became a, 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 a bit of an agonizing process because I didn't want to get it wrong. And while we acknowledge that each of those decisions are important in and of themselves, uh, at the same time, you know, there, there's something more to it. We realize that at that stage of life, there's something more to it because, you know, I wanted my life to matter. I wanted my life to be going in a direction that was good and was going to lead somewhere. And, and there's something about each of those decisions that would have been a part of that outcome. And you know what, regardless of the age and stage of life that we are in, I think that most of us, if not all of us, we want our lives to to mean something, don't we? We want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and and to feel like we are making a difference in our world. And the good news is that what we've been talking about over the past few weeks is we've been talking about shalom, we've been talking about God's peace, we'll do just that. And so over the past few weeks, we've been talking about shalom, which is God's peace, and how shalom has the ability to make a real-life difference in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And this is especially, I think, true in this time when we are aware that there is no shortage of things that, that threaten to divide us from one another. And so shalom gives us an alternative, and it starts very simply with you and with me, in the ordinariness of our everyday relationships, practicing the shalom thing. And so if you've missed what we've been talking about over the past few weeks, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to recommend that you go to our, our website, you check out our, our teaching time, particularly two weeks ago when we talked about an introduction to shalom, um, because there we laid the groundwork for everything that we've been talking about and will be talking about. And uh, so you can watch that on YouTube, you can find our podcast, and let me just say as a quick aside that I'm excited about it, this week we figured out how to get our podcast on Spotify, and so for those of you who are Spotify users, you can find us there. Uh, but I just re- just recommend that you have a, that if you haven't had a chance to listen to that teaching time, that you go back and you and you take a take a couple moments to listen to it. Even if you up the speed to one and a half times, just so it doesn't I don't take as long. I do that all the time. Okay. <laughs> You know, one of the trends that we see uh, in our culture today is to write off people who have offended us or we find ourselves in disagreement with. And the term that can be associated with this trend is often called cancel culture. And cancel culture, if you're unaware, here's a definition of cancel culture from the Cambridge Dictionary. Cancel culture is a way of behaving in a society or a group, especially on social media, in in which it is common to completely reject and stop supporting someone because of something they said or something they have done offends us. In cancel culture, we appoint ourselves the arbiters of right and wrong and also the judge and jury. That's just one definition of cancel culture. Now, it would be an interesting conversation for us to go around the room, we're not going to do this right now, but to go around the room and maybe for some of us to name some of the people in our culture who have been canceled in recent years. And maybe if you're looking for a conversation starter in the foyer, you know, you're standing around a little awkward, be like, hey, who's your favorite person who's been canceled and why? That could be a conversation starter for you. Um, But if we were to share stories like that, I think we'll likely find that in some cases we're in agreement with why somebody has been canceled by our culture because, you know, what they have done or what they have said appears to be so heinous to us that they need to be held accountable. 
And in fact, I might suggest that one positive thing about cancel culture is it does promote a sense of accountability. And there's been some high-profile people who have been held held accountable who my guess is at one point they felt invisible, either because of their celebrity status or because of their positional power. They felt felt invincible and didn't think they'd ever be held accountable. And so accountability is maybe a good thing that's come with this. Another one of the positives of this trend is that it has empowered ordinary people who often feel like we don't have a voice to be a part of bringing about change. And in that sense, it has leveled the playing field. And again, that's kind of a good thing. But at the same time, there are things about this trend that I'm going to suggest could or should make us uncomfortable. For example, we may recognize that canceling others is often ideologically driven. Both the left and the right practice cancellation. And again, I've said this before, I'll say it again, nothing productive happens in extremes. Solutions to complex problems are most often found in the messy middle. And so canceling people whose point of view, whose politics are are different from ours, it doesn't help us find solutions. It's not practical. A second thing is that we may recognize that canceling others can be a weapon against those who are quote-unquote enemies. You know, while the term cancel culture it seems to be newer, it's not a new thing. People have been doing this forever. For example, throughout history, there have been these things called witch hunts. You've heard of them. Um, and, what, and this has happened at multiple points in history in various societies in different countries all across the world, and it still happens some places today. And while I guess that there's some sort of greater good that, that is trying to be accomplished, one of the realities of this practice is that it has been linked to just getting rid of people we don't like. In fact, it's said that the typical witch that was executed in Europe during a, a peak witch hunt period was a peasant woman who was single, who was known to be quarrelsome and aggressive. Basically, she advocated for herself. People didn't like that. They wanted to get rid of her, so they killed her. They found a way to get rid of her. They canceled her. Third, it could be that we recognize that canceling others sets a standard that we wouldn't want to have applied to us. And there have been cases of high school students who have been rejected from colleges and universities because of things that they posted early on in their school. Um, And here's the thing, as I think about this, in grade nine, I was a moron, okay? And while I would like to think that I wouldn't have posted anything inflammatory, and the thing is I couldn't because social media didn't exist back then, um, I do recognize that there are things that I did and things that I thought when I was younger that I thought was okay, but now, at this stage of life, I realize they're not okay, but back then I didn't know any better. You know, when we cancel someone for something they did way back at some other point in time, we leave no room for growth. We reduce an entire person Uh, and their potential to a moment in time and we create an environment where it isn't okay to make mistakes because a single error could ruin your entire life. This morning we want to continue talking about shalom and how shalom or God's peace helps us navigate our relationships in these divided and polarized times. And I, I think as we do so, we need to be aware that, that we might be taking our cues and we might be taking direction for how we engage in our everyday relationships from what is going on in society around us. And so given the influence of cancel culture, we might find ourselves believing that it is our right. No, actually, it's our responsibility to judge others for their beliefs or the attitudes that they might have. 
We might find that we're keeping, uh, we're keeping track of the ways that people have offended us or have harmed us. You know, we've got a list just in case we need to. We need to hold it against somebody. Or we have found ways to shut out people um, that used to be close to us because we find the things that they think or, or the positions that they hold offensive. And so we find ways to shut them out of our lives. You know, I've heard it said that over the past couple years, over the past couple years, we realized that we had more crazy uncles than we used to think we did. You know, with all the things that have gone on, we realized that there's more people that are close to us that have positions or thoughts that in the past we would have thought are kind of like, you know, not too many people think that way. And if you're like me, our response could be to try to shut them out, to try to push them to the side. Maybe not in extreme ways, but we find ways to try to get them out of our lives or at least push them to the side of our lives as our default response. But the thing I've been chewing on recently is this. Are the ways of cancel culture actually compatible with the way of Jesus? I think the answer is no. And so this morning, we're going to explore this. And our big idea is that practicing shalom means refusing to adopt the ways of cancel culture in our daily relationships. And to help us with this, we're going to look at three different instances from the life and teachings of Jesus. And our first point this morning is, uh, is that shalom declines the role of judge over others. And to help us with this, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, starting at verse 1. These will be familiar words to some of us, I'm sure. Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank, a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First take that plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, in these verses, Jesus is warning his followers to not take on the responsibility of being the moral police, the moral guardians and critics of other people. Now, this doesn't mean that we should not have standards of, of behavior for ourselves or standards of behavior for other people, but it's, it's a call to avoid the temptation of taking on that role of judge, which ultimately belongs to, to God. You know, when we judge someone, what we are doing is we are acting on the belief that we know what the real standards are, that we are maybe the real standards of what is right and wrong, and we start to think of of those who aren't living up to our standards as being inferior to us, perhaps. When we judge someone, we slide into the role of assigning consequences uh, or what we think the consequences ought to be for somebody else's behavior or the way somebody else thinks or the way that somebody else, uh, what other people might believe. And this practice of seeing ourselves as the judge is a part of this cancel culture thing and is a part of what causes divisions in our relationships with one another. Now Jesus in this passage here points out that this practice of judging others can can cause us to be ignorant of our own shortcomings. See, we can be so consumed with what is wrong in some, with somebody else. We can be so consumed, as Jesus says, with the speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye And what should be done about that, that we ignore that we have our own shortcomings, that there's a big log coming out of our eye, to use Jesus' example here. Instead, Jesus instructs his followers to take a closer look at their own lives. Because when we do, we're going to notice that we have our own shortcomings. And when we recognize our own shortcomings, that'll actually help help us help others with theirs. 
Not because we're suddenly perfect, but because we've experienced the pain of our own mistakes and we've experienced the joy of grace. And so our interactions with other people will be, uh, it will be known by a humility and gentleness as a response. You know, this week, there's going to be somebody in all of our lives who does something stupid. This week, one of our coworkers is going to voice an opinion that we think is just plain wrong. This week, somebody who's an acquaintance to us or maybe a family member is going to post something that we find offensive online. And the temptation is going to be to judge them for it. But the problem with judging people like this is that we tend to reduce an entire individual to a single action, a single opinion, a single mistake, in a way that we wouldn't think is fair if that was applied to us. But we do it to others, and in the process, we begin to think that we are better than they are. Jesus says here, don't go there. Don't do that. Instead, we need to be aware of our own humanity. Remember those times when we screwed up? I'm sure if we just thought about it for a moment, we'd think of something pretty quickly. Or how about those times when we become aware that the thoughts inside of our heads, they scare us? When we realize that we have the potential to do some, some truly awful things just floating around in our mind. We need to keep in mind that we're often not as different uh, from those that we are tempted to judge. Normally, I have a, a paper coffee mug here. This morning, I decided to bring one of my favorites. I don't know if you can see it, but on this side, it says corner gas. And on this side, it says the ruby. And if you don't know the reference, I honestly feel sorry for you. Uh, you're... Your Canada, Canadian passport may be revoked. This is in reference to one of the most fantastic Canadian TV shows of all time, also known as Corner Gas. Now, unfortunately, my wife does not share my love for either this mug or the TV show. Um, and uh, I, I guess that this mug doesn't really match anything else that's in our house. It certainly doesn't match the other mugs that are in our, are in our cabinet. And so she just wishes that it will go away. And sometimes she tells me she wishes it will go away. Sometimes she says, couldn't that just go to the office with you? And I say, no, it belongs at home. Uh, and in fact, today, when I, or last night, when I went looking for this mug, do you know where I found it? At the back of the cabinet between two other rows of mugs. Like it's been hidden behind that. Like she's trying to pretend that this mug doesn't even exist. And I'm sure one day, if I'm not careful, it's going to be misplaced. We've had this for almost 12 years, dear. I, I'm sure the next couple, it might just disappear. Now, this is a silly coffee mug that my wife doesn't like. I get it. But in a way, we can respond similarly to people in our, to people in our lives that maybe we don't like, or for various reasons, we find ourselves so annoyed by them or so upset, or so offended, or so disgusted even with, with them that we just wish that they would go away. And maybe we even try to do some things to get them out of our lives. Let's keep that in mind as we talk about our next point this morning, that shalom always seeks reconciliation. And let's look over at Luke chapter 19 for this. It's a familiar story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, 
He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. You know, the story of Zacchaeus is the story of a man who's been rejected or, or canceled by his society. As a tax collector, Zacchaeus was viewed by his fellow countrymen as a sellout, somebody who had betrayed his people by agreeing to, 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 to gather taxes for the enemy, the hated Romans. And this wasn't like this is just a job for Zacchaeus. On the one hand, you're like, the, the man needed a job, he got it. But on the other hand, you know, part of this is his own fault because tax collectors were seen as dishonest because they could abuse the system to make themselves wealthy. And Zacchaeus is not just some tax collector, he's the head tax collector. Like, he's the problem. And so they wished that he would just go away. And not only that, they can't understand why Jesus would give a man like Zacchaeus any time. And the fact that Zacchaeus had to climb the tree to see Jesus coming describes how he was not welcome to stand with the rest of the crowd. Sure, he had a bit of a height issue, but people weren't even letting him through. He was not allowed to be there. But Jesus' response was different. You know, instead of joining in on the shunning of Zacchaeus, we see Jesus moving towards Zacchaeus. Actually, like, he's almost like a beelining towards Zacchaeus, calling Zacchaeus by name. And in doing so, he is affirming Zacchaeus' dignity, his humanity, his worth. And as Jesus spends time with Zacchaeus, something amazing happens. Zacchaeus recognizes the error of his ways. He repents and he chooses to make reparations for his past sins. I don't think any of that would have happened if Jesus had, had shunned Zacchaeus like everybody else had. You know, when it comes to dealing with some of the difficult people in our lives, the easy response is to pull back and to try to avoid someone. And sometimes we do this out of anger. Sometimes we, 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 we do this because we're offended. And other times, you know what, we just don't know what to do with that other person. And, and, and so we just kind of pull back. But I wonder here if this story reminds us of how such responses only serve to deepen divides. You know, I'm sure that the fact that Zacchaeus was shunned by the people of Jericho didn't help his disposition towards them. I'm sure he would, like if it was me, I'd feel a little vengeful. Fine, you're going to not include me. You're going to push me to the side. Then, hey, I'm just going to rip you off even more. But Shalom seeks reconciliation. And in this, in this reconciliation, it provides the possibility that the cycles of division and conflict can end. You know, reconciliation does not come through avoidance, but happens when we, when we choose to move towards someone. You know, when we take a deep breath, when we enter into, enter into a shared space, when we initiate a conversation and treat that other person like a human being, treat them like we would want to be treated. Now, for some of us, what's coming to mind here is, is someone who has caused us some serious harm. And so as a qualifier, let me just say, I don't think a reconciliation means that we put ourselves in a position to be victimized over and over and over again. And not only that, sometimes our desire for reconciliation won't be reciprocated. 
Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18. He says, hey, you are to make an effort to go and be reconciled to somebody, but there, will be, there may be a point in time when we have done our part, you have done your part in tr- seeking reconciliation, and the other party isn't willing, and Jesus says when that happens, step away. But too often, that is our default. And we don't even try to lean in to seek reconciliation to begin with. Instead, we mirror a culture that is quick to cancel. I don't like the way you think, and so I'm shutting you out. Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus should challenge that being our default response. This past week, we got the class pictures for, for our, kids at, our kids' class pictures at school. It was kind of fun to look at it because you can look at these pictures. You can finally put faces to names, and that's, that was kind of a fun experience to figure out who are these kids that our kids talk about. And so I was sitting down with one of our kids uh, at, at midweek, and I was having them go through and point out everybody. And I said, okay, who do you play with? And they went through, and they pointed the name to who you play with. And I said, what about these guys over here? Do you ever play with them? And they said very quickly, no, we don't play, I don't play with them. I said, Why? Well, this one time, they were mean to my friend, and so I don't, we don't play with them anymore. It's funny, because, like, you know, you got a five-year-old who clearly, like, there's a bit of a grudge there, and that is how he now sees these other individuals in his class, through the lens of this grudge. That's how we understand some of his classmates. You know, as adults, we nurse grudges, too. We aren't any better. Five-year-olds just kind of let it out. As adults, we try to hide it a little bit better, but we nurse grudges, too. We remember the things that people said, the things that they did, the way that they looked at us that one time, that offhanded comment that didn't sit well. And it can be a part of how we see and how we relate to the people around us. And when we let that take root, it really just contributes to the divisions that we experience. But Shalom instead chooses the way of forgiveness. Shalom chooses the way of forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, we read this. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Hmm. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. You know, here we have one of Jesus' closest friends coming to Jesus with a question that, you know what, he thinks he's got the answer to. Because you know what? Peter's been paying attention. He knows forgiveness is kind of a big deal to what Jesus is doing. And he knows that forgiveness doesn't just happen once. It needs to happen a couple times in some instances. And so he's come up with this number of seven times. And to him and to other people, that would have seemed pretty generous. I mean, after all, there needs to be a limit, right? You know, that idea that there is a limit to forgiveness, I think, is a very human thought pattern. Perhaps it has to do with the, the size of an offense, or perhaps it has to do with somebody's inability or refusal to change their ways. But at some point, we might find ourselves saying, hey, you know what, I just can't forgive that, or I'm, I'm done trying to forgive that person, and I get it. But coming to that conclusion and being okay with that conclusion isn't what shalom is all about. And so in response to Peter, Jesus points him in a different direction And that direction is that there's no limit to forgiveness. And to illustrate this, Jesus tells a parable about a man who had this huge debt that he could never repay, this debt to a king, and how the king decides to forgive that debt. And a part of this story should remind Jesus' followers about how God, as our king, has seen our sin, and while he could hold that against us, has chosen to forgive our sin debt 
And like that man in the story, the reality is that we could never repay or we could never make it right on our own. But here's the thing. We often get consumed with the sins of others. And we tend to forget our own sin. For Jesus, he wants his followers to keep in mind that we have been recipients of God's forgiveness. And our experience of receiving God's forgiveness is supposed to inspire us to go and forgive others. And in fact, that's the implied expectation of this parable, that our practice of forgiveness is rooted in our experience of being forgiven. As Jesus continues telling this story, he focuses on the response of the man who's been forgiven and what he does next. And in this story, this man does what we so often do. He, he is somebody who is committed to holding a grudge. He's committed to holding things against other people. And the man leaves the king and goes and he sees somebody that owes him a very, very small amount. And he has absolutely no mercy on him. In fact, he wants his money and, he, and he's willing to cause harm to get what he thinks he deserves. You know, as we reflect on this parable, I, 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 want, I think that the point is not necessarily that this man should have forgotten that he was owed something by the, by the other individual. It may have been a good thing, but that's not the point. Rather, the error of this man is how he held it against the other man. See, when he laid eyes on that other man, all he could see was what he was owed. In fact, he seems to be so locked in on, on, on seeing this man this way that he loses any sense of humanity as this man begs for more time. You know, as we talk about forgiveness, I think we need to understand that forgiveness is not necessarily a form, is not a form of amnesia. But what forgiveness is, is it's a choice to see people differently. You know, when we uh, obsess over somebody's faults, when we obsess over their mistakes, or even how they've harmed us, when these are the things that define how we see other people, then the result will be that we can seek to cancel. We might choose to seek to cancel them or push them out of our lives in some way. We might hold a grudge. But the way of shalom chooses to see people through the lens of grace. Now, as another qualifier, this way of shalom, this way of forgiveness does not require that the other person ever says that they're sorry. Because you know what? In some of our stories, that might never happen. They, that other person might never realize the error of their ways, or they may never come to you and say, hey, you know what? I was wrong. Rather, our experience and practice of shalom is something that God grows in us, and it forgives even when the other party is unrepentant. Again, it doesn't mean that we pretend that things are good when they're not, nor does it mean that we put ourselves in a position to be victimized, but forgiveness, it, it changes how we choose to think and respond to other people, to the people who have maybe caused us harm or the people who are on the other side of an issue than we are. And again, this is easier said than done. And I know that some of us are dealing with some really serious hurts, and there's no simple answers for how we are to forgive someone who has caused us such deep levels of harm. But we are invited to practice forgiveness. And in the process, we're going to experience God's shalom coming and healing our hurts. And we do this by allowing God in. By allowing God in, going to God with the wounds that we carry, with the, the baggage of relationships that we, that we carry every day, and the emotions of, 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 of someone who is unrepentant at times. And we go to God and we say, God, do what only you can do in me. Free me from this. You know, if we could heal ourselves, we would, but we can't. 
And this is why we turn to Jesus. And in turning to him, we experience the freedom of his shalom working through us to bring healing to our hearts and to bring healing that can move into our relationships with others. Folks, we live in a culture that is accepted that it's just okay to write somebody off. And this reality threatens to seep into all of our relationships. Relationships with our partners, with our spouses, with our kids, with our parents, with our friends, our coworkers, the people we go to school with. And I don't know about you, but in the back of my mind often is what happens if somebody in my life wants to cancel me? That doesn't make us feel pretty, very good, does it? So it makes us feel like we're on unstable ground. But the way of shalom here offers us a different path. It offers us a new way to relate to one another that's based on humility. It's based on a commitment, uh, a commitment to, to reconciliation and a commitment to forgiveness. And it's hard work. It really is. But it's a way forward that will be life-giving to everybody who's involved. Now, next week, we're going to take a, a break from this series. Uh, I'm, I'm away for the week. Uh, Pastor Terry uh, is going to be speaking next week. You know that, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> It'll be excellent. Uh, Terry's like, what? what? You didn't tell me. Yes, Terry's speaking next week. We're looking forward to that. The following week, we'll be back, and we're going to wrap up our Shalom series as we talk about uh, the, what does it mean to work towards justice, and how does justice fit into the Shalom thing that we've been talking about. But for now, we're going to wrap up, and why don't I close in prayer, and I'll ask the worship team to come up. Lord Jesus, we want to say thank you for who you are and for what you've done in our lives. God, this week, would you help us to be mindful of your grace, of your love, of your forgiveness, and Lord, how you accept us when maybe we wouldn't even accept ourselves, God. And Lord, as we encounter the various people in our lives, maybe the people who seem to be committed to making our lives difficult, or maybe it's a coworker who thinks differently than we do, or maybe it's an awkward conversation with a family member. God, would you help us to, would you help us to choose to enter into these conversations with humility, with love? Lord, would you help us to be uh, committed to reconciling with others as much as it's possible? And Lord, where forgiveness is hard, would you give us strength? Would you help us? God, would you heal us through the acts of forgiveness? God, thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Amen.